Yo-ho, all you peeps. You're actually still here, listening to this new mini-sode of the Nasty Pasty podcast. We only had an episode yesterday, but seeing as I'm not going to be here for a while, I thought I'd give you an extra to tide you over. We're going back to our little side series of mini-sodes where I cover a film from the black and white era to explore the origins of the genres which would later become featured quite heavily in the Nasties list. This is not really to look at controversial films today or to seek out nastiness in relatively ancient pieces of filmmaking, but it's a bit of a history exercise. Today's episode is focusing on one of the first creature features, or Monsters of the Week, Animals Gone Mad, Radioactive Mutations, that sort of film. I chose one quite close to my heart though, as it was one of the only horror films from this era that I'd actually seen as a kid. I'll explain though a little further. When I was a kid, we had a satellite box attached to the TV, which had a functioning sky card that you actually had to insert into it in order to get a signal. I think it was one of those hand-me-down ones as well, for my grandmother, funnily enough, but this was back in the olden days of satellite television, so I think you had to have a proper subscription that you paid for. Anyhow, it worked, but we were limited to one channel only because we didn't actually pay for any subscription. And luckily, it was Cartoon Network. So cartoons would end up playing all day. But then strangely, the signal would go to TCM or Turner Classic Movies in the evenings around 7. I don't know how this worked, but anyhow, that's all we had if we wanted to watch anything outside of the five regular TV channels. On one such night, though, there was this film called Them, which was on and it was in black and white and I was initially hesitant to watch it as I used to just dismiss films that were black and white but after just a few minutes and after the first sound of the creatures I carried on watching it I ended up really enjoying it as well and I proceeded to watch black and white movies from that day on so it kind of popped my black and white cherry so to speak and I think shortly after that I watched Psycho and the original Night of the Living Dead and I pretty much was frustrated at myself since that I didn't give them a chance sooner. So with that little bit of history out the way let's get on to today's main feature 1954's Them. Police patrol seeks out the location of an emergency call about an abandoned child in the middle of the desert. The two officers, Ben and Ed, find her, catatonic and unable to speak, before they receive another call about an abandoned trailer not too far away. Finding the place in an almost destroyed state, but no sign of burglary but dry bloodstains, Ben becomes suspicious when the place seems to be full of sugar cubes. A strange footprint is also found at the scene, which is lifted by the investigators. 
As the medical team arrives, a strange high-pitched trilling noise is heard, alarming the girl who reacts to the sound with fright, but the others seemingly dismiss it as just the wind. As night falls, a storm begins to settle in around the desert, so the officers head back into the city and stop at a general store on the way. The store too is abandoned and in a complete mess, this time with a corpse in the basement of the owner, who's been pulverised but with the same strange loose sugar. As Ben leaves to file a report, the same strange noise is heard outside and Ed goes to investigate, only to open fire on something and scream before dying. After Ben's superior, Edwards, discovers that the little girl's deceased father was an FBI agent, they bring in an agent called Graham to help with the investigation, but further scouting of the desert proves fruitless. The coroner reports that the corpses at the scene suffered fatal fractures in various parts of the body, but the most disturbing element was the large traces of formic acid in their bodies. Due to this rather alarming fact, two doctors, Harold Medford and his daughter Patricia, are brought in to help with the case, who first visits the little catatonic girl. On a theory, Harold puts a glass of formic acid under her nostrils, rousing her back to reality and causing her to scream them, them, in an emotional panic. Heading to the location of the two attacks, Harold and Patricia locate more of the strange tracks, when suddenly the trilling sound appears again, this time announcing the arrival of a gigantic ant, which heads for Patricia. Harold screams for Graham and Ben to fire upon the creature's antennae to disable it. They do so before Ben finishes the thing off with a blast of machine gun fire. Confirming it to be an ant, Harold hypothesises that they're the result of remaining radiation from atomic testing in the desert area, and after searching around for the nest, they locate the nest entrance which is littered with the bodies of the missing victims. Explaining that the ants are only foraging in the cooler hours of dawn and dusk, Harold suggests that they lay phosphorus near the entrance using bazookas to keep the surface area hot, driving the ants further into the ground so that they can drop cyanide into the nest to exterminate the pests. After dumping a sufficient amount down, Graham, Ben and Patricia descend into the nest tunnels to see if the operation was successful. Although they find many carcasses they do find a live ant in what appears to be a caved-in chamber. Venturing further in it, they appear to have been in the Queen's chamber with countless eggs and dead ants, though Patricia is disturbed by the appearance of some empty shells which are a different colour. Back at the station, Harold explains that these eggs would have contained queen ants, which are winged. Since the group found no ants with wings... The queens have therefore moved out of the nest with their winged consorts, meaning that at least two of them are going to be seeking out a new nest. With the situation becoming ever more urgent, the group go directly to Washington to warn them about the danger, prompting a nationwide request for information about strange flying objects, sugar thefts, or otherwise suspicious incidents. Some flying ants are spotted in Texas by a pilot, heading westwards, while later that night a ship sends a distress signal that they have been ravaged by giant ants. The ship is sunk officially by naval gunfire, forcing them to focus on the other queen. A large sugar theft happens in Los Angeles, shortly after which a man is killed suspiciously when he takes his kids out for a walk, who are now missing. Unknown as to where the man was going, Graham investigates all arrests in the area on the night of the man's killing, speaking to a drunk in hospital who said that he spotted ants in the riverbed. Seeing that there's many entrances to the LA sewers there, Ben and Graham guess that the ants have nestled inside the sewers, confirmed when they find a print outside the main sewer entrance. 
Marking a drastic change in action, Harold has the President of the United States informed, who issues martial law upon Los Angeles and broadcasts a citywide warning of the danger of the ants. Ben, Graham and Patricia enter the sewers with convoys of the military to check out the sewers for signs of the missing children. Ben hears a suspicious sound and investigates further, finding not only the two missing kids, but also two worker ants that have cornered them in a dead end. Fighting them off with a flamethrower, he rescues the two boys and has them escape through a small tunnel, just before he's grabbed by an ant's pincers. Backup arrives and shoots the ant, but Graham arrives to see Ben die from his injuries. Several ants quickly converge on the area, which the cavalry destroys as they approach. Harold and Patricia arrive and insist that the nest cannot be caved in as they need to check if any new queens have hatched. Graham gets trapped inside the nest when a cave-in occurs anyway and manages to stave off the attacking insects until they break through the cave-in. The whole group goes further in and discovers the queen's chamber with newly hatched queens inside. Deducing that all of them are accounted for, Harold has the remaining creatures burned alive. Graham expresses worry that if the ants were born of one atomic test, what will happen with the countless others? Harold grimly states that atomic testing opened a door to a new world, and there's no way of knowing what that door will bring in the future. What is it? Species appears to be Campanotus fecinus. One of the family Formicidae. An ant. An ant? I don't believe it. It's not possible. Then this is what got at Blackburn and Gramps Johnson in arrest? Yes. A fantastic mutation. Probably caused by lingering radiation from the first atomic bomb. Notice its odor? Yeah. Formic acid? Well, then that's why that little girl reacted so violently. And the coroner's report said that Gramps was filled with the stuff. See that? It's the stinger. Ants use their mandibles to rend, tear, and hold their victims, but they kill with that by injecting formic acid. Mr. Johnson was stunned to death. There's no time to lose. We must find the colony, the nest. You mean there's more of them? This was probably just a scout foraging for food. You heard the sound. The stridulation. It communicated with others in the colony. Communicate? You mean these things sent messages? Of course. All insects have means of communication with their own kind. For such an old film, it's quite endearing that such a film has stood the test of time as well as them has. It's one of the first science fiction horror pictures to highlight the dangers and anxieties of using nuclear warfare, even beating the iconic original Japanese Godzilla, by having the monstrous antagonists as mutated results of atomic hoofing around. It was certainly the first gigantic insect movie too, being followed quite quickly by stuff like 1955's Tarantula and 1957's The Deadly Mantis. Them began production in the fall of 1953, and it was originally supposed to be filmed in colour. Shortly before shooting though, the studio Warner Brothers cut the budget, believing that too much money invested would be wasted, and the film was to be just made in black and white. As they'd already got the equipment, however, the opening credits featured the title in a burst of blue and red. The original plan was also to film the movie in 3D, but despite having the equipment and actually shooting a second 3D eye, it was ultimately never used and presumed to be destroyed after the film was released. 
Some residual effects of the 3D action shots remain in the film, such as having ants getting screen close-ups and the flamethrowers that shoot directly at the screen. Filming took place in the Mojave Desert in California, with the exterior shots of Los Angeles actually filmed near downtown, at the actual spillways of the Los Angeles River. Even though the finale of the film is set in the Los Angeles sewers, the original script had the ants nesting in the New York City subway system, invading the stations, but not only did they not have the budget to do such scenes, the Transportation Secretary of New York was not comfortable with that happening. The filming went as well as can be hoped, with relatively little issue, except actor James Whitemore was apparently thirsty for attention and frequently performed arbitrary actions on screen like moving his hands and motioning so that more attention would be drawn to him. He was also reportedly conscious of the height difference between him and James Arnis, so he used shoe lifts to make himself appear taller. Another slight issue was the filming in the middle of the desert, in which temperatures soared to 110 degrees Fahrenheit, or for us in Britain, 43 degrees Celsius. As viewers can see, Joan Weldon, who plays Patricia, wears a woolly outfit in these scenes, while Harold wears a large overcoat. This meant that the actors were insufferably boiling when they were shooting these scenes, but particularly for Edmund Gwen, this irked his arthritis and caused him immense pain. Very professional of him to carry on, though, because I can't actually say I noticed this in the final film. Some of the effects in the film also warrant a mention, one of which was the flamethrowers. Apparently, they were genuine World War II combat weapons, loaned especially by the US Army. But obviously, due to their dangerous handling, the two actors who used them were World War II veterans who'd used them previously. The stars of the show, though, the ants themselves, were constructed and puppeteered by a crew of technicians, and there were only three of them created in total, meaning that you could never see more than three on screen at once. In fact, you can notice a similarity occasionally, as one of the ants, for example, in the Los Angeles sewers, has a rather damaged set of antennae, meaning that it's the same model as the one that's shot earlier in the film. If the film was in colour, the ants would have been a peculiar greenish-purple colour, rather like that of like a healing bruise. Another iconic aspect of the ants is the strange noise they make. Which is actually a recording of mainly bird-voiced tree frogs, which are native to southeast USA, with the occasional grey tree frog noise cropping up as well. The clips in question were recorded at Indian Island in Georgia, sometime in 1947 by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and it's actually been utilised in several films since then, like 1956's Mohawk and 1957's The Black Scorpion. And speaking of famous sounds, eagle-heared viewers may actually hear a familiar sound employed at least four times. It's the Wilhelm scream. Played when Ben is killed in the sewers, when Graham is attacked in the same place, and even on the ship when a sailor is grabbed by the giant insects. While the characters are solid, but not too sentimental or charming, the strength of them comes from the well-written dialogue, the references to real-life biology, and the habits of ants combined with the relative seriousness of it all. I mean, the film is mega fun, yet it feels as serious as if the situation were real, and it's quite mysterious how it achieves this. Of course, some of the aspects are dated, like the insistence on some of the male characters of being chauvinistic towards Patricia, but notably her character commands quite a bit of respect and seriousness due to her profession. 
she's not just a pretty face. She means business and she knows her stuff, which I believe was quite uncommon for this era of film. When I watched this as a kid, I was fascinated by the scenes where Harold is explaining the ant's behaviour and the strictures of the nest and their social habits. Even today, his explanatory scenes are just as endearing as listening to David Attenborough explaining natural flora and fauna on the BBC. Not to mention that despite heavily ageing and not being up to par with today's expectations, the ants are actually kind of creepy, especially with that sound that they make. As a kid, I'd always shiver a little bit thinking about the sound afterwards. Of course, though, the film is ultimately quite mild, even for its time. But for those who are interested in how most of these tropes started in Creature Features, this is certainly somewhere there where, where you'd have a look at. I'm a huge fan of this film, and its influence is felt even today, being mentioned in all sorts of things. I mean, footage from the film ends up in Eight-Legged Freaks, Lilo and Stitch 2, and for all you other Marvel fans out there, Ant-Man and the Wasp. One of my favourite video games too, Fallout 3, which is set in a post-apocalyptic nuclear wasteland, even has an in-game quest called Those, in which you have to destroy a colony of giant mutated ants who've overrun a small town. Main guy James Whitmore, who played Ben, was a veteran dramatic actor who'd been on Broadway before going into films. For modern audiences, his most well-known role would be as the ill-fated Brooks from The Shawshank Redemption, but he'd been in other things too, like the war film Tora 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 and 1968's Planet of the Apes. Harold was played by British actor Edmund Gwen, who notably played Chris Kringle in the original version of Miracle on 34th Street, as well as roles in the Lassie films. Joan Weldon, who played Patricia, had been in 1957's Gunsight Ridge, while James Arnes, who played FBI agent Graham, had played the titular invader in the original The Thing from Another World. Leonard Nimoy, who famously played Spock in the Star Trek TV series, also makes an uncredited appearance as an army officer. Director Gordon Douglas had made many movies over the years, like directing Laurel and Hardy and stuff like Elephants Never Forget and Saps at Sea, but he also directed stuff like Young at Heart, Follow That Dream, and Viva Knievel in 1977. The writer, George Worthing Yates, seemed to specialise in science fiction in the 50s, working on things like It Came From Beneath the Sea, Earth vs. the Flying Saucer, The Amazing Colossal Man, and Frankenstein 1970. Producer David Weisbart worked on stuff like Valley of the Dolls and Rebel Without a Cause, whilst editor Thomas Riley would eventually work on Helen of Troy just a few years later. Finally, the special effects guy, Ardell Lytle, also worked on The Incredible Shrinking Man and The Thing from Another World. Notably, the special effects of them was actually nominated for an Oscar, which just goes to show how well regarded they were at the time. The film was released theatrically in June of 1954 in the US, and accrued $2 million by the end of the year, making it one of Warner Brothers' more lucrative projects. It's a bit up in the air, though, as to whether it was the studio's highest-grossing film, as there doesn't seem to be any definitive figure of the takings, but it was definitely up there with the top earners. It was released in UK cinemas in July of the same year, notably with cuts for an X rating. I'm really curious as to what was cut out, though, because the film is so mild. Regardless, it passed uncut at PG level in the UK in 1985 on its VHS release from Warner Brothers. This was just after the Nasties scare had died down too, so it would have been a genuine legitimate release. Not that it would have been considered nasty in any way. 
It's now available in various forms, but it did just recently get a remastered Blu-ray with all sorts of yummy features. I don't have this this one yet, but because of my fondness for the film, I do need to get a copy as soon as I can. So, that was 1954's Them, and it's the conclusion to our little mini-sode for you. So, I hope everyone enjoyed going through this little slice of my childhood as much as I liked recounting it. I'm now off to Spain, though, for a few weeks, Japs, so do think of me as I'll be forced to sup all sorts of nasty alcoholic beverages and ingest foul barbecued meat and foodstuffs. I'm sure you'll miss me, but I'll be back in two weeks, everyone. As usual, hit up the Nasty Pasties social media accounts if you've got any feedback or opinions on this, or any of our other films, and I'll see you in October on our next episode, The Small Killers One. Bye for now, though, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.